0: The Alan Watts iPhone app is now available on the iTunes App Store, featuring the entire Alan Watts podcast series at your fingertips. Visit alanwattsapp.com for more information. Now, when I was a boy in school, I'll go back to this, because my experience may not be, t- I don't know how typical it would be of children brought up in the United States in a religious environment, but my experience in England was quite fascinating. Uh, about you know, when as one is baptized as a child and uh, you don't know anything about it and your godfathers and godmothers are your sponsors, and then there comes a time when you are about to enter into puberty, when you are confirmed, when you undertake for yourself your own baptismal vows that were made on behalf of you. And in England, confirmation into the Church of England, which is Episcopalian in this country, confirmation is preceded by instruction. And this instruction consisted very largely of lessons in Church history, because the British approach to religion is peculiarly archaeological. It is based on uh, the, the great past, the great Christian saints and heroes and uh, it's it's really quite interesting because it somehow associates you and puts you in the tradition of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table and all that sort of thing but the time comes when every candidate for confirmation has a private talk with a school chaplain and uh, obviously in every process of initiation into mysteries from time immemorial there has been the passing on of a secret. And so there's a certain anticipation about this very private communication because you would think if you are being initiated into a religion what the secret consists of is some marvelous information about the nature of God or the fundamental uh, reason for being and so on. But not so in this case. The initiatory secret talk was a serious lecture on the evils of masturbation. <laughs> what these evils were, were not clearly specified. <laughs> and so, uh, but it was vaguely hinted that ghastly diseases would result. <laughs> and so uh, we used to, in sort of in a perverse way, enjoy tormenting ourselves with imaginations as to what kind of terrible venereal diseases, epilepsy, tuberculosis, and the great Siberian itch would (laughs) result from this practice. Now the extraordinary thing about it is this, that the very chaplain who gave these lectures had in his own upbringing been given the same lecture by other chaplains, and this went back some distance in history, I imagine, and they all knew perfectly well that one of the characteristic uh, behavior patterns of adolescence is ritual defiance of authority. But uh, you have to make some protest against authority, and in this you are in league with all your contemporaries, your peer group. And nobody, of course, would dream of giving anybody else away, because that would be to be a tattletale, a skunk, definitely not one of the boys. And so, therefore, quite obviously, masturbation provided the ideal outlet for this ritual defiance because it was fun, it was also an assertion of masculinity, and it was very, very wicked. <laughs> so I meditated on this some time as to why the system continued. And I came to the realization that the Christian put-down of sex is an extremely mysterious thing. In the religious background of the Western world, we have in the main two traditions, one Semitic and one Greek. So far as the Semitic tradition is concerned, the material world and sexuality are definitely good things. Both Jews and Muslims I think that uh, God's creation of beautiful women was a grand idea. <laughs> In the Arabic book, which is their Islamic version of the Kama Sutra, known as the Perfumed Garden, the book opens with a prayer to Allah, which is a thanksgiving, a very full, detailed thanksgiving for the loveliness of women, with which Allah has blessed mankind. And in the book of Proverbs, we are enjoined to enjoy our wives while they are young. But, uh, on the whole, it is the Semitic belief that sexuality is justified solely for purposes of reproduction of the species. This uh, makes it good in the eyes of God, and sexual energy should not really be wasted for other purposes. That's the limitation put on it. Now, on the other hand, we have a Greek tradition which is peculiar in that it is strongly influenced by a dualistic view of the universe in which material existence is conceived as a trap, as a fall into turgid, clogging matter which is antagonistic to the lightness and freedom of the spirit. And therefore, for certain kinds of Greek religion, among which we must name the Orphic Mysteries, the Neo-Platonic point of view, and the later Gnostic points of view, being saved means being delivered from material existence into a purely spiritual state. From this point of view, sexual uh, involvement is the very archetype of material involvement. Matter, mother, matter, matter are really the same word. And so the love of woman is the great snare. This is, incidentally, a doctrine invented by men. <laughs> and it goes back to the words of Adam The woman that thou gavest me, she tempted me, and I did eat. <laughs> Now, in the development of Christian theology, from approximately the time of St. Paul through the beginning of the Renaissance, it was universally held that sex was a bad thing. You should read St. Augustine on this. He said that in the Garden of Eden, before the fall. Reproduction took place in just the same way and uh, with just the same lack of excitement as one excretes or passes water. And there was no uh, shameful excitation of the sexual parts. And uh, the whole attitude of the church fathers in those centuries (laughs) was that the virgin state was immensely superior spiritually to the married state, and that sexual relationships were excusable only within the bonds of marriage and for the sole purposes of reproduction. And the manuals, the moral penitentiaries of the, the theologians of the Middle Ages list all sorts of that must be said even by married couples who performed sexual intercourse on the night before attending Mass were still before receiving Holy Communion and of course it must utterly be avoided on certain great uh, church festivals. So although in theory marriage is a sacrament which somehow blesses this peculiar relationship there is a definite attitude that It is, after all, dirty and not very nice. Now you must realize, too, that in those days the institution of marriage was not what it is today. Marriage, at the time of the rise and development of Christianity, was a social institution for alliances between families. You did not marry the person of your own choice, except under the most peculiar circumstances. You married the girl your family picked out for you, and they thought it over carefully, from its political point of view, as well as from the point of view of eugenics, and uh, whether this was a good healthy girl, and whether this was a good healthy man, and they had an economic bargaining about it, and you married this girl. You weren't necessarily in love with her. And it was perfectly well understood, in the secular world, that on the side, uh, you had other arrangements. Uh, you had, if you could afford them, concubines, or even second and third and fourth wives. And these uh, subsidiary wives were, um, um, there was a somewhat more choice open to you in getting those than in the first one. first one is definitely a family arrangement. Now, that's the context of it. Don't forget that. So what the church was saying was only that woman should be your bedfellow whose marriage has been arranged by paternal authority. The idea of romantic love does not arise in connection with marriage until the troubadour cults of southern France, of Provence, in the late Middle Ages when there begins to be this idea of the idealization of a woman as the inspiring uh, goddess almost of the knight-errant. Dante's Beatrice is the inspiring woman who leads him to heaven. Now historians are not agreed as to whether the lady loves of the chivalrous knights were in fact their mistresses or whether they were simply idealized women. <clears throat> but the influence of the cult of romantic love on the West was profound. And it brought about a weird combination of ideas. One, the notion of the married state being the only licit relationship in which sexual uh, play might be carried on, and two, the notion that the girl you marry should be the one you've fallen in love with. Two more ill-adjusted ideas could hardly be put together. (laughs) Because naturally, when you love someone very much indeed, in the enthusiasm and ardour of you, you say things that are... You've been listening to Alan Watts. From the Spoken Word Library of the Electronic University. For copies of this and other Alan Watts programs, please go to alanwatts.com on the World Wide Web, or call us toll free at one eight hundred W O Watts. That's A L A N W A T T S dot com, or one eight hundred W O W A T T S. The Watts website features free audio downloads. Program lists and information on Watts' life and works. Once again, that's allenwatts.com or 1-800-W-O-Watts.